0: My name is Dave, I am one of the pastors here at Crosspoint, and today we are kicking off a new series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we are going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians until Easter. That's a long time, right? Uh, That's about 27 weeks, and we're going to take a couple breaks, but, and we're also, the thing about 1 Corinthians is, it is, it kind of has like five or six parts to it, so we are going to go through five or six different series as we explore this amazing letter from the Apostle Paul. And we're going to start today with 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And as I was thinking about this letter, because that's what it is, it's a letter that Paul wrote to the church, I I was thinking about letters. And some of the letters that I've received over the years, letters that have changed my life. And I'm, I'm sure that everyone in here has probably received a letter that changed your life at some point, right? It, maybe it was a letter, a college acceptance letter, you're in, Maybe, or maybe you were rejected. Either way, it's a life changer, right? Um, sorry to bring that up. Maybe you received a letter from the doctor's office or the lab saying that your test results were negative, and that changed your life in some way. Maybe you received a rejection letter from some girl that you really loved or some, some guy that you really loved. I've received all of the above, just so you know. Um, I remember one letter in particular that I received. I, I was 23 years old. I was in a really dark place in life. I was very alone. I felt lost. I was depressed. I was a college dropout. I was a drug addict. The only thing that I had going for me, I had a job. That was it. It wasn't a good job even. It was just a job. I just started this job. I just moved back to Milwaukee, and I had nothing. I, I just, I had very few friends in my life, very no direction whatsoever, and I, I, I was uh, living at my parents' house at 23, and um, after years of just kind of wandering, and my, a friend from middle school, I hadn't heard, seen him or talked to him in like 10 years, he, he writes me this letter, he didn't know where I was, and he didn't know who, what I was doing with my life, what kind of relationship, if any, that I had with God, and he He wrote me this letter, sent it to my parents' house, and I happened to be living there. So I got the letter, um, and, and I was going through this letter, and reading it, he just poured out his heart to me for some reason. And as I was reading the letter, my heart began to soften. And in the letter, he described how Jesus Christ had radically transformed his life. And he was sharing with me how God had just rescued him and completely turned his life around. And as I'm reading this letter, I remember just feeling like I was coming undone, and, and my heart starting to soften to God. And, and I kind of knew—I kind of knew about God. I was raised in a Christian home, and I, I knew the Bible pretty well—at least I thought I did. And I thought I knew. I mean, I thought, how, "What's happening here? Why am I feeling this way?" I mean, could God God really be interested in rescuing me? Could God actually have the power to take my life, which is a worthless life, and redeem it? I mean, I gave up on God a long time ago. Didn't he give up on me? Or could it be that God is way better than I ever imagined him to be? Those are some of the questions I was asking myself as I read this letter over And over and over again. And and God used that letter to change my life. He used that letter to change my life. And I believe that God wants to use a letter to change your life as well. In fact, the New Testament is made up mostly of letters, over 20 of them. And every single letter in the New Testament is unique. Every letter is personal. And every letter has the power to change us in ways that we can't even imagine. And today we're going to begin reading what is the second longest letter in the New Testament. And I am so excited because I believe that God wants to use this letter to change us. I believe he wants to change every single one of us and make us stronger as a church. Is there anyone in here this morning who, who feels like you need a change in life? Anyone? <laughs> Thank you. Now, if you're here this morning and you feel like, you know what, I don't need a change. I'm doing, I'm doing so great. I don't need anything. I am complete. Then you need this letter. More than anybody. So, today, what I'd like to do is I'd like to introduce you to the letter by telling you the story behind it. This letter that we call 1 Corinthians. And I, I feel like you just have to know the story. We can't just dive in. You need some background. So, it all starts with a man named Paul. He was an apostle. The Apostle Paul. You've all probably heard of him. And he was a church planter. A church planter is someone, church planting is super hard work, okay? A church planter is someone who goes into a city, they talk to people about Jesus, and they start a church where there was no church before. That's basically what they do. That's what Paul did. And church planters are really tough dudes. They have to be. Okay, church planting is not for the faint of heart. It is not for people-pleasers. It is not for the insecure. Church planting is not for someone who is unsure about their calling. It is not for you if you have a track record of giving up, or maybe you have a history of jumping from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. It is not for people who avoid confrontation. I don't know that I have what it takes to plant a church. I'm pretty sure I don't. It takes a special kind of person. Church planters don't stay in one place for very long. At least they didn't in paul's day, they were so focused on building god 's kingdom and so obsessed with making disciples where none existed before that they have to they just can't seem to settle down. they always want to go somewhere new where there's more people who don 't know Jesus yet and they are tough as nails. they are usually city people that 's how Christianity started in cities in major urban centers and most church planters are city people they love cities because they love people, and they just want to be around as many people as possible. That's one of the reasons we moved here into the city of West Dallas. They can take a beating. They can take criticism. They can handle rejection. When they fail, they get back up and try again, and they are resilient because they know what they're called to do, and that calling matters more to them than anything else in their life there's a little bit of a church planter profile for you. And that's who Paul was. That's who Paul was. He was a church planter. In Acts chapter 18 is the story of how the church in Corinth began. I would love if you could read it this week and, and read it in, as we, you know, continue to go through this series for some background. I'm just going to summarize it for you. In Acts chapter 18, Paul is on his second missionary journey. His second missionary journey and he had just come, he's in, He's focused on Greece, and he had just come from Athens, and things didn't go very well in Athens. In fact, he arrives in Corinth, as far as we know, alone, maybe with a few people who he picked up in, in Athens, but not very many. And he, in his own words, he comes to Corinth with fear and weakness and trembling. Okay, he's not expecting much as he comes into Corinth. He's not, you know, he's not expecting a welcome parade of any kind. He's discouraged. And Corinth, by the way, is not what anyone would call a fertile soil for the gospel message. There are no churches there, no no Christians there. It is a religious city, but there's a lot of religion, in fact, a lot of different religions, but no Jesus. There are quite a few temples to various gods, The individual is is celebrated. You know, I'm going to let you be you. You let me be me. I don't want you telling me that your religion is better than mine or trying to persuade me that you're right and I'm wrong. You know, everyone just follow you. You follow your heart. I'll follow my heart. You do what's what's right for you. I'll do what's right for me. That's kind of the mindset in Corinth. It was a major sports city. Many of the world's best athletes trained and competed there. Every single year. It was very diverse culturally, racially. There were Greeks, Romans, Jews, Egyptians, Syrians, Asiatics, Latins, just all kinds of people. It was a melting pot. There was, it was one of the biggest cities in the ancient world. It was only about eighty to 100,000 people, but that was one of the biggest cities in the world at that time. Because the earth didn't, just didn't have as many people then. <laughs> and that was a huge city for that day. 80 to 100,000 people. About a third of those people were slaves. There's a ton of food and entertainment. There's a lot of prostitution. One prominent New Testament scholar said, Corinth was all at once the New York, L.A., and Las Vegas of the ancient world. That's what it was to Paul. I mentioned there are no churches there, but what Corinth does have is a Jewish synagogue, and Paul is a Jew so he decides, okay, I'm going to start with the Jews. That's what he did most of the time when he went to his city. After Corinth, that kind of changed, actually. But he goes into the synagogue. He starts persuading, trying to persuade Jews that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He's what the whole scripture is about. He's the one you've been waiting for. And the Jews reject him, they insult him, they mock him. And Paul says, okay, that's it. I'm done with the Jews. And he leaves the synagogue, and he he finds a house that is literally next to the synagogue. And he starts preaching there to anyone who will listen. And to Paul's surprise, a bunch of people start believing in Jesus and are baptized. And Paul has the makings of a church that is meeting in this person's house. But he's still discouraged. He's still discouraged. He might have wondered... You know, whether or not anyone else would believe his message. He he probably dreaded another beating. Paul had already been physically beaten many times for, for preaching the, about Jesus. He'd been beaten with rods. He'd been pelted with stones. He, he was shipwrecked on one occasion. He was thrown in prison on multiple occasions. He was traveling over rough terrain for miles and miles every day. Probably thought about giving up on a number of occasions. I know I would. You know, maybe I should just you know, take a break and go off to a quiet place somewhere where I can, you know, be safe and stop talking about Jesus so much and and not draw so much negative attention and all these religious fanatics always, you know, picking me apart. Maybe I should just keep Jesus to myself and stay safe. And then something happens. God shows up in a vision. In Acts chapter 18, verse 9, we read about it. And I love how the New Living Translation uh, expresses this vision. It says in verse 9, One night the, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack and harm you. For many people in this city belong to me. Imagine hearing that if you're Paul. This city that you're in right now, this wicked city, Corinth, many of these people belong to me. All you have to do is, to, is tell them about me, and they're and they're going to change forever. And so Paul, after he sees this vision, he decide, he stays in Corinth for eighteen months with these people, preaching the gospel about Jesus, teaching people, training leaders, equipping people, counseling people, building them up in their faith for eighteen months, night and day, providing for his own needs. He builds a church, and I'm not talking about brick and mortar. There's no building. There's just homes. But he is investing himself into people for 18 months, pouring himself out into these people, into these new disciples of Jesus. He gives them everything he has. And then he leaves, because that's what church planners do. He leaves, there's a church, he needs to go to the next place and reach more people. So, so, so far, sounds pretty good, right? Just wait. After Paul leaves... Some leader, other leaders come after him, and these are, these are good guys, good men and women. They come after him to strengthen the church in Corinth, because Paul's not on a solo mission. He's got a team. There's a team of people. There's about 30-some-odd men and women that are mentioned in the New Testament that were traveling companions, co-workers with Paul. And in Corinth, I want to tell you who they are. There's a few of them. We have Silas and Timothy. They are church planters in training, sort of, who had worked with Paul and followed Paul around and helped him in his work. And Paul would send them here and there and other places to check up on Christians to build them up and things like that. And then there was, um, oh, I forgot about Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla. These are the first, this is the first two people that Paul partners with in Corinth. They're Jewish, they're married, they own a business together. I don't know if there's any married couples here who, you know, you live together, you work together, you have a business together. They're like with each other all the time, right? And they still love each other. And we know this because they're together a long time. We hear about them a bunch of times after this. And they come to faith in Christ, and they start working with Paul. He stays with them in their house. They end up training Apollos. They end up hosting a church in their house at the, right after Paul leaves. People start gathering in their house. And there's a church there. And then there's Apollos. He's a skilled communicator. Aquila and Priscilla find him. He is a gifted teacher and preacher. He is very well educated. He knows the scriptures. There's Barnabas, who's a great encourager and pastor. There's Peter, the apostle who followed Jesus. A powerful apostle, a healer. All of these leaders. And then there's Paul, who planted the church. All of those leaders had their hands in the church at Corinth before Paul sends this letter. And what happened was, Over time, cliques begin to develop around these different leaders. Some gravitated to Apollos, some gravitated to um, Peter, some to Paul. And there's like these factions, you know, cliques in the church around these different leaders. And then some people from the church who worked for Chloe, who was a businesswoman in the church in Corinth, they run into Paul in Ephesus. That's where he went after Corinth, Ephesus, And they tell Paul about some of the problems they're having in the church. They tell Paul, Paul, the church is falling apart. There's division. There's jealousy. There's quarreling. There's competition. There's sexual immorality everywhere. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. There's some specific stuff that's really messed up. There's people taking one another to court and suing each other. It seems like everyone's getting sick all the time. The low-income families and needy people are being mistreated. They're not being cared for. We also know from Paul's tone in the letter that this church thought they were a lot stronger than they actually were. They thought they had everything they needed. In addition, there's people in the church who are questioning whether or not Paul was qualified to lead. I mean, imagine that. Think about that. I mean, here, Paul had given them 18 months. He risked his life for them. He worked tireless, tirelessly. He never asked them for money. He provided for his own needs He worked night and day, he's teaching, building, counseling, equipping them, and they're wondering if they should really trust him and let him, you know, continue to influence and lead them. And so Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth, and over time, it's lost. It's not preserved. We don't, we don't have it. That was the first letter. In fact, Paul writes four letters over the years to Corinth, and we only have the second and the last one. And, and we know those as First and Second Corinthians. And so he writes this first letter, and the church writes back to Paul with some questions and some misunderstandings. And here's some of the questions that they asked, and I'm just, I don't know if they asked these questions this exact way, but we know that these questions were asked in some way, shape, or form, right, because of what Paul writes. Here's the first thing they, they, they ask. Okay, Paul, our bodies are made to eat and have sex, Right? We have appetites. Shouldn't we just feed those appetites? That's what our bodies are made. I mean, doesn't Jesus just care about what we do with our spirit? I mean, we're spiritual, right? Who cares what we do with our bodies? That was the first issue. Second question. Is it wrong for us to buy and eat meat that was offered as a sacrifice to false gods? In other words, does it matter where we get our food from? There's some people in here who care a lot about that. Does it matter where we get our food from? Some people are critical of you, Paul, and questioning whether or not you are the real deal. That was a huge problem in this church. Another question they asked, our Sunday services are pretty chaotic. There's all these people speaking in tongues at the same time. No one knows what anyone's saying. Some of our women are challenging the teachers with all these questions. People are interrupting each other. It's kind of a free-for-all. There's confusion and distractions. What should we do? Some people are questioning whether or not there will be a future resurrection from the dead. What do you think about that, Paul? And then finally, people are coming in early and taking bags of Panera and then just leaving. What should we do? Oh, wait. No, that's from our church. I'm not sure how that slipped in here. Sorry about that. Uh, So what we have in Corinth is we have a worldly church. That's That's what we have. We have a worldly church. These are people who started following Jesus, right? They added Jesus to their life, but they didn't really subtract much. They're following Jesus, but they look a lot like the world. They're different, but they're not acting like it. That's a big part of the problem. They don't grasp how much the good news of Jesus, the gospel, matters to every single area of their life what they eat, what they do with their bodies. How they worship, how they work, how they live. They, they, it hasn't sunk in yet. They basically, they're incredibly gifted and talented church. They had a lot of good things going on. But they were not a cross-centered church. They did not understand the power of the cross. That's their biggest problem. And now I think we're ready to read the beginning of this awesome letter. What is Paul going to say to this struggling church with all the problems that they have? How do you begin? Where do you begin with this church? Let's, let's look at it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read the first nine verses. This is what Paul says. This is how he begins. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes... Now, isn't it amazing that Paul, knowing about all these problems, knowing that these people, some of them don't even trust him, they're suspicious of every word he says, that the first thing he says, is he, the first thing he does is he praises them. He, he recognizes their strengths. He highlights who they really are. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we are constantly receiving messages from the world around us about who we are and how we should think about ourselves. And the world tells us that we should think about ourselves in relation to what we have. You know, you know, the house we live in, the cars we drive, the stuff we fill our lives with. We're told to think of ourselves in relation to our level of education, to our income. We're told to think about ourselves in relation to what we're good at. Parents do this with their kids all the time. Oh, you're so good at that. You're so good at soccer. You're so good at art. You're so good at singing. And, and we just keep building them up until they, that they, you know that's part of their identity. And if they, you know, if they ever get rejected as an athlete or an artist or a musician, their life comes apart because we've built their identity on something that will never last. We're told that we should think about ourselves in relation to our career or our job or our life achievements or our friendships or our bodies, how we look, or our past. Maybe our past sins and our failures. Maybe those keep coming, creeping back up. And we keep thinking about ourselves in relationship to that. But according to God, none of those things define you. None of it. If you are with Jesus, if you belong to him through faith, it's because you were called by God and you answered that call. So think of yourself in relation to God. That's your ultimate reality. Who God says you are. And in the introduction to this letter God says that you are sanctified, you are a saint, you are set apart, you are holy, you are different. You are not who you used to be. You shouldn't even think of yourself as a sinner anymore. Even though you are, I mean, even though you do sin, you, you give in to sin. I do too, every day. But the New Testament writers almost never talk about us as sinners, unless it's in the past. The past tense, it's who you used to be. We're called saints 67 times in the New Testament. You know why? Because God doesn't, he doesn't look at us in relationship to our past. He looks at us in relationship to our future. And there's a big difference, isn't there? No matter where you're at in that journey. Some of you might be asking, how do I know if I'm called? Can I be called by God and still struggle with sin? Yes, you can. You absolutely can. But you're not meant to stay there. Because you're called. And God knows you. You are a new creation. You can't go back to the way you were because you belong to God. And God has made us his treasured possession. And how did God do that? Through the cross of Jesus. That is the price that God paid to make us his own. His treasured possession is through the blood of his only son. And that's what defines us, my friends. There was a time when you were alienated from God, and I was too. We were living in darkness. We were living apart from God. We were outside of his family, the church. We all once lived that way. We were all enemies of God. We were all controlled by our passions and desires. We were controlled by our love for money. We lived for sex. We lived for power. We lived for status. We lived for praise. We lived for love. We lived for friends, we lived for family, we lived for a career, we lived for recognition. Maybe you lived for status. And that will never change until God pulls the curtain back and reveals himself to you as the reason for life. That's what happens. God reveals himself to you and he calls you. And you realize Jesus is the reason for my life. He is the living word. He's the reason for my life. He's the reason I have life. And when that happens, Jesus has to move from the outside to the center. He has to be the center. And when that happens, there's no going back. And no one else, no one else gets to tell you who you are anymore. No one else gets to define your purpose. Only God gets to do that because you belong to him now. And only he has the authority to tell you who you are and what you're made for. I'm not defined by what I do. I'm defined by who I belong to. I belong to God, and we are his treasured possession. And because of that, God is going to finish what he started in you you believe that? God is going to finish what he started in you. He is not done with you. He is jealous for you, and he will keep you strong to the end. That's what Paul says in the first few verses here. Some of you need to hear this. Maybe some of you, you know, Phil was describing earlier about his who his class is kind of targeted for, and I, I, would, I would imagine that there's a lot of us that are struggling with that you know you maybe you feel stuck in your faith you feel like you're going through the motions maybe you feel like you're stuck in a job or you're stuck in your marriage and you just can't get past this place you're stuck as a parent maybe you just feel stuck in life you feel stuck with a certain sin you've been battling forever and you can't seem to break free from that pattern you know that destructive pattern and god's word to you is this i am not done I am going to keep you strong to the end. There's going to come a day and you're going to stand before me with no guilt and no shame, blameless. Just think about that. That's where you're going. It will happen because I'm God. That's what he says. God always finishes what he starts. And I believe God, start, God has started something in you. I believe that's why you're here, because God started something in you. God called you. He knows you. And he's going to finish what he started. You know how I know that? Because of verses 7 through 9. Let's look at those one more time. Verses 7 through 9 say, As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Who is faithful? Who is faithful? God is faithful. Are you faithful? No, I'm not faithful. That's how we know the, well, the way the story ends. God is faithful. It doesn't matter how hard it is right now, it doesn't matter how confused you are, it doesn't matter, matter how, how lost you feel or how frustrated you feel. God is faithful. None of that changes who God is. My mom, many years ago, gave me this uh, wooden plaque that um, I took. It's in our house on a shelf. It says, God is faithful. The reason she gave me this plaque is because this was like her mantra for many years as I wandered further and further away from God. She kept telling herself, she kept telling her friends, her family, and me that God is faithful. And when I finally woke up to God— in my life she gave me that plaque because she wanted me to remember she wanted me to remember she knew that things were not going to get easier they get harder being a Christian is not easy following Jesus is not easy my friends you know that and that's why we need this I look at this almost every day and I'm reminded that my mom and my grandma and grandpa and my sister and my friends and my cousins and tons of people I don't even know and have never met prayed for me for years God Help Dave. Rescue Dave. Save him. Have mercy on him. Call him. Please, God, call him. And you know what my mom knew? You know what my mom knew? She knew that God had started something in me. That's all she knew. She didn't know when he was going to finish it, she didn't know how he was going to finish it. She didn't know when I was going to turn to Christ, but she knew it was going to happen. Because she knew, God is faithful. God is faithful. And then one day when no one expected it, I got that letter. I got that letter from my friend. And he concluded the letter with these words from Jesus in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. As soon as I finished reading that, those words from Jesus, I knew what I had to do. I knew that I had to follow Jesus. I knew that that's what God wanted me to do. I knew that was my only hope. I hadn't had hope in years, and for the first time I had hope. And I knew that I had to leave behind everything that I thought mattered and just go to where Jesus was. And that's what I did. And I don't ever want to go back. God used a letter to change my life. And I believe he's going to use a letter to change your life. Now one more thing I'd like to say about Paul. This is so fascinating to me. Think about this. When Paul heard about all these problems with these Christians, Christians like us in a lot of ways, he could have just washed his hands of them, He could have moved on. He could have just written a note instead of a letter. And the note might have said, good luck with all that. I did everything I could. You guys are beyond my help. But he didn't do that. He fought for them. He was thankful for them. He wrote them three more letters. He tried visiting them. He sent other people to visit them. You know why? Because he believed that they were going to be radiant, powerful disciples who finished well. Because what they had was from God. And Paul knew God. And he knew that God was going to finish what he started. He knew that God was faithful. And that's all he needed. And that's all we need. And here's what I want you to know before we leave today. No matter where you're at in your faith, we are going to fight for you. We as a church are going to fight for you. We are with you. We are thankful for you. And our church has problems too. And we'll talk about those. But God is faithful, and Jesus is going to keep us strong to the end. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you, God, for who you are. We thank you for your loving kindness towards us. We thank you for your patience with us. That even though we fail over and over again, you are faithful to your word. You love us beyond measure. And we are looking forward to the day where we will stand before you, a radiant church, without spot or blemish or wrinkle. Jesus, you love us. And I love when we sing as a church about your love and and your faithfulness and how you've changed us from the inside out. God, may we remember this week who we are. May we remember your faithfulness and stand firm in that. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Before we uh, dismiss you this morning, I uh, just wanted to remind you of the 15 minute message Phil gave you earlier about everything going on at Cross Point this fall. Um, we actually have in the back corner there, uh, everything that's kind of happening. The classes, if you want to sign up for a class, if you want to be baptized, you can uh, drop the card in, um, on the back table there or give it to me or one, or Phil or somebody. Um, we have the Bible Project. There's going to be a video showing back there if you'd like to see what that's about. And a binder that is kind of a sample week. that I'm really excited about that. And uh, the chili cook-off and everything else. So what we're going to do as far as the meal, and I hope I get this right because <clears throat> it's kind of fuzzy with, with, in my mind right now. But there's a bunch of people out there preparing food for all of us. And what we need to do first is have the parents go get their children. So we're going to let the parents get their children as soon as the benediction is done. And then everyone else I'm going to ask to stay in here for just a few minutes because it's pretty crazy out there right now, and it's gonna, especially with all the kids. And then after a couple minutes, you know, just peruse the back. Or, I mean, if you have to go, fine, go. It's fine. Um, but we're not going to make you stay. We're not going to guard the door. But go ahead and take a minute and just check out what we have going on. Sign up for a class or whatever. It's a great way to connect and grow in your faith. And uh, to get to know other people from Cross Point. So thank you so much for being here today. I'm going to ask you to rise as I give you the benediction, and then you'll be free to go. Please bow your heads with me as I read from the letter of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy... To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you in a little bit.